Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I'm delighted that this week's podcast is sponsored by the Book of the Year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish. If you've ever listened to the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, you will know that nobody's better at sniffing out barely believable yet hilarious facts than the team of researchers behind the BBC TV show QI. And now they've written a book and it's full of the weirdest and funniest true stories from the year, including news that priests stop praying for people in case in doing so they breach new data protection laws. Having lived with the nightmare of GDPR at work, I can quite understand that. I bet you can too. They've also uncovered that a Belgian footballer inadvertently caused a revolution in Haiti, as you do, and that Elon Musk released a product that throws flames up 10 feet. He called it not a flamethrower. And there are many, many more. The Book of the Year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish is your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news. It's out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook in all good bookshops and online. Please support my sponsor and this podcast and buy this excellent book today. The podcast this week is a story that fascinated me from the moment I first heard it. And the threads running through it will be very familiar to regular listeners, both of you. It's about those on the fringes of society. You know, those people who, if they are on Facebook, tell you exactly how it is, not the version we try to sell to others. We have drugs, casual sex, heavy drinking, extreme violence, and fun around, or rather on, the picnic table. What is there not to like? For reasons that will become clear, I will then spend a little time talking about the mysterious death of an English sitcom actor. But before we start, a huge thank you to all my wonderful Patreon supporters, but especially this week's new supporters, that's Annette Owens, Ed Valiente and Stacey Moore. Thank you so much, and I really hope you enjoyed the 20 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content all for the price of half a pint of a craft beer in a trendy Shoreditch bar. So let's set some context to the story by looking at what we were listening to in July 2007. Number one in the UK and US charts was Umbrella by Rihanna featuring Jay-Z. Top album in the US was thrash metal star Michael Bublé with Destroy... Sorry, it was called Call Me Irresponsible. Sad to hear this week that after all he's been through personally, he will no longer perform. Christmases just won't be the same. In the news, UK and Australia implemented a smoking ban following Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. It's hard to remember just how bad your clothes used to smell the morning after a good night out now, isn't it? Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the final book in the series, was published, selling 11 million copies in 24 hours. Wow, that's up there with this podcast. But great news for adults who enjoy children's books. I know, I know. Harry Potter's for everyone, right? As is Twilight. Yeah, not so sure. 
Did you watch the minor royal wedding on Friday? Me neither. I would rather stab forks into my eyes. But I couldn't help browse through the guest list, and some of the bigger names attending had achieved success through talent and hard work. But others, of course, were there through the chance of their birth. I thought of this as I researched today's story about Barry Evans from Telford, Shropshire, in the midwest of England near the Welsh border. Life could have been so different for him when after a difficult birth he was adopted and only 10 weeks old by Colin and Lillian Evans. They were nice, solid, caring people who gave Barry and his older brother Terry lots of love. The family emigrated from Shropshire to Australia when the boys were young, but tired of the amazing quality of life, they returned to Telford, Shropshire. And why not? And what is there not to love about Telford and the locality? Incidentally, the place that Jeremy Corbyn was born and raised. Barry aspired to join the police and was a police cadet for a little while, but he found drink and then drugs, and as he did so, those hopes for the future took a back seat. Barry drifted from job to job, including running an ice cream van and working as a security guard. And from relationship to relationship, and he had two sons, neither of whom lived with him due to his addictions. One of his children, Damien, was adopted and went to live in Ireland. But he said the following about his dad, Barry. He wrote to me through social services while I was in Ireland, and I came back here when I was 18, and I lived with him for a while. He was a good dad. Everybody knew he was a friendly guy. He gave everyone the time of day. He was a real people's person. Damien said he was aware his dad faced problems with drink and drugs, but added, even though he had his problems, he was getting help and getting sorted. And neighbours too said he was a really good guy. Quiet, likeable, fun to be with and interested in others when he was sober, that is. As we all know, some people are incredibly different when on drink and drugs, and not always in a positive way. And unfortunately, this described Barry. But Barry was a bright man, he had self-awareness, and he still saw some hope. He still remained close to his parents, and they would often help him financially and give him emotional support when he got into the inevitable trouble caused by his chaotic lifestyle. By July 2007, Barry knew it had to change soon or it would be too late for him. In sober moments, he looked in the mirror, and although only 45, he could see the effects of being an alcoholic and a heavy drug user for the past 25 years, including heroin and ketamine. He particularly regretted the ketamine, which he blamed for scrambling his thoughts. But having made a real effort to kick the drugs, in July 2007, he'd been clean from them for almost eight months, although the alcohol was a different story. But Barry was also very aware that he had sunk into a depression about wasting his life, letting down his parents, and had over the last few months tried to kill himself by setting himself on fire, getting badly burned. Then just at Easter, he had taken an overdose and was only saved by his on-off girlfriend, Wendy Walters, finding and resuscitating him. He was lucky to live, and this, and keeping off the drugs, had led to the re-evaluation of his life, which included finding God, and religion was becoming increasingly important to him. His girlfriend, Wendy, said, Since he's been off drugs, he reads a lot from the Bible. He said we would never be clean or saved until we were with God. 
Barry had met Wendy almost exactly a year earlier during the summer of 2006. Wendy was also addicted to hard drugs and the day they met, Barry invited her back to his house where she stayed the night. Wendy had been married for eight years at the time, but when they had met, her husband Christopher was serving a four-year sentence from 2005 for going with two accomplices to the Shropshire house of Wendy's then-lover, Roy Lacey, and beating him up in a jealous rage. Wendy herself hadn't exactly come out of the case smelling of roses, as the judge had bound her over after finding that she'd been guilty of playing off her husband against her lover, and this was a major reason for the assault. Wendy was an interesting character. In 2007, she was aged 42. Her blonde hair and looks still turned heads among the men in her social group, despite the years of alcohol and heroin abuse. She had three daughters, one of whom died in 2003, whilst due to her, again, chaotic lifestyle, another had been adopted and the other one was living with her father. It must be pretty tough to handle, mustn't it? Wendy was homeless for periods, but in September 2006, she moved to a privately letted flat not too far from Barry. It was March 2007 when she again met Barry Evans, but she described their relationship as more best friends than a couple. And although they did have sex, it wasn't a regular thing, according to Wendy. But it wasn't exactly Harry and Meghan. And between the two of them, they had ferocious arguments, which could lead to violence. On one occasion, Wendy had even threatened Barry with a knife. But these sort of violent exchanges happened when both had drunk way too much. And on a daily basis, there was some genuine affection between them. They even exchanged sloppy text messages in which they described the love that they felt for each other. There was also animosity between some of Wendy's exes, some of whom she still drank with and had sex with. In her circle, drinking and casual sex went hand in hand. But as we've heard many times on this podcast, while some people can enjoy sex without emotion, for others, feelings naturally come into play and jealousy can lead people to act erratically and often violently. There was a problem between Roy Lacey, the previous lover involved in the altercation which saw her husband sent to prison, and Barry. Roy adored Wendy, and he wanted to have a monogamous relationship with her, and he saw Barry as a clear rival for her affections. But the issue with both Roy and Barry in the summer of 2007 is that Wendy's husband was due out of the slammer in a couple of months, and much as she enjoyed their company, when he was a free man, she fully intended for them to carry on living as a married couple. It's unclear just how much she told him about her lifestyle while he was inside. Probably not too much, I guess, with his violent tendencies. Saturday, July the 7th was unremarkable in many ways. It had been an unsettled Wimbledon fortnight as finals weekend began, but in Shropshire, not too much tennis was being watched in Wendy's house. That morning, Roy Lacey unexpectedly arrived there after being driven by police from the cells following a domestic incident with his partner the night before. Barry, Wendy and Roy drank whiskey from mugs, but as they did so, the tension of the morning rose and the mood became more ugly. 
Soon the trio were pretty wasted, but their drinking session came to an abrupt end after Barry called Roy a paedophile. Before things got out of hand, Wendy separated the men, leaving Barry drunkenly dozing on the couch while she and Roy headed to Telford Town Centre. When he awoke and realised they were gone, Barry spoke to his parents on the phone a number of times. He was upset and agitated by what had happened that morning, and more widely still about the direction his life still appeared to be heading. In Telford Town Centre, Wendy cashed her gyro cheque for £77.49 and bought a £20 mobile phone from Woolworths, a £22 cross necklace from Argos and groceries from Asda. What happened next, it was early afternoon, I can't find out too much about. But Wendy phoned another friend, Sean Johnson, and they met and had sex in a picnic area in the middle of the afternoon, as you do before he dropped her at the flat. When she arrived back at the flat, Wendy takes up the story about what she saw when she went into the living room to show Barry her new phone. Barry was sitting on the end of the settee with a knife in his hand and I could see spots of blood on the floor, she said in tears. He stabbed himself in the shoulder. He stood up and knocked my phone out of my hand against the wall, breaking it. I tried to pull the knife out of his hand but I could not, and he put it in his shoulder. I was scared he was going to kill me. His idea was for both of us to die together. Wendy continued that Barry then went into the kitchen, washed the knife, put it in a drawer, and returned to the living room where he collapsed. She said she later found him lying on his stomach. I thought he had collapsed through drink, she said, and after seeing the blood, she went to a phone box to call the police. At 3.34pm, the emergency operator received a 999 call from Wendy. Paramedics attended the scene and did all that they could, but were tragically unable to save Barry's life. And just 45 years old, he died on the floor of his flat. As the police arrived at the scene, a shocked Wendy sat in the bedroom in a very agitated state, swearing repeatedly. Asked about how Barry came to be stabbed, She said he'd been holding a kitchen knife when she came back from the shops and had started digging, as she called it, at himself. He did it in front of my eyes. I tried to get it off him, she said. Wendy told the officer that Barry had stabbed himself about eight times before collapsing in a pool of blood. She then led one of the detectives to the kitchen where she opened a drawer, pulled out a long blade and declared, that's the knife. In interviews later, She claimed that Barry told her before she went shopping that he was going to kill himself because of trouble he was having with his mum and his dad. Forensic experts found he suffered five stab wounds to the chest, including a fatal wound to an artery by his heart, and three in the back, two of which pierced the shoulder blade. The fatal blow severed an artery serving the heart and lungs, and he would have collapsed and died within minutes. But they questioned if Wendy was telling them the full real story. One expert brought in had a special interest in self-inflicted injuries and cases had been referred to him from the UK, Australia and around the world. He said that self-inflicted stabbings were unusual. Such wounds were normally grouped together and there was often evidence of tentative wounds where a person tried to build up courage to do so. 
What is very rare is self-inflicted stab wounds in the back of the body, he said. I can refer to the National Injuries Database and have not found any case of stab wounds in the back, only superficial scratches. The doctor also noted scratches under Barry's eye of the type that would be inflicted in a struggle. And when questioned, he agreed that a drunken man could have increased strength and feel less pain. But asked whether it would be possible for Barry's wounds to be self-inflicted, he replied, We never say never, but this would be the first ever case. Although Barry had a history of self-harm, two other pathologists said it would have been virtually impossible for him to have stabbed himself in the back with such force that it pierced bone. And his blood-stained shirt pocket, apparently ripped off in a struggle, was found in Wendy's handbag. She told police that she had no idea how it got there. But detectives were now certain about what they had suspected when they first arrived at the scene. Barry hadn't killed himself in a frenzied stabbing, but had actually been murdered by Wendy. There was certainly evidence of Wendy using violence towards Barry, as we've already heard. Another friend of Barry's came forward to say that on the last time she'd gone to Wendy's flat, she was off her face, drugs, drink, and shouting her mouth off at Baz. She went into the kitchen and came back with a black-handled knife. She went to stab him, but I jumped and grabbed her and took the knife off her. Detectives believed that Wendy and Barry had got into an argument, and Wendy had murdered him. At her trial, 42-year-old Wendy Walters denied the murder of Barry Evans. Her husband, Chris, now released from his own prison sentence, was in court to offer her support. The jury took less than two hours to reach its verdict after a six-day trial, probing what defence counsel called the half-world of drink and drug abusers in Telford. The judge told Walters that she would serve the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment and would have to remain in jail for at least 15 years before being considered for parole. She told her, This was an act committed in the heat of the moment. You were in a murderous rage, no doubt induced by the drink you had taken to excess and the drugs you had been using. After the verdict, the family of Barry Evans said his death had left a void in their lives. Speaking after the case, Detective Inspector John Collier from West Mercia Police said, Barry Evans' life was needlessly cut short by Wendy Walters and she will now face the consequences. She has shown no remorse for her actions on Saturday the 7th of July and even now the exact reasons why she took Barry Evans' life are not clear. There are many parts of the case that fascinate me but in particular it's this half-world as the Defence Council described it. In towns, cities and villages near you there are these people living this life on the very fringes of society. Research in this case, I kept reading about the death of another Barry Evans, and I wanted to share this with you too. Those of us of a certain age may recall the incredibly popular sitcoms Doctor in the House and Mind Your Languages in the 70s and 80s in the UK, which both contained a character with boyish good looks, who played the naive Dr Michael Upton, and the long-suffering English teacher, Jeremy Brown. This actor was Barry Evans. Born in Guildford, Surrey in 1943, he was orphaned 
and brought up in a Dr. Bernardo's home in Twickenham, Middlesex. Intent on a career in acting, he won a John Gilgood scholarship to train at the Central School of Speech and Drama before making his theatre debut in Barrow and Furness. He found his first big break in Spring Awakening at the Royal Court Theatre and soon afterwards appeared in Chips With Everything on Broadway in 1963. So a promising career. But in 1997, at age just 52, his lifeless body was found on a sofa at his bungalow in the village of Claybrook, Magna in Leicestershire. He was four and a half times over the drink drive limit, the inquest in Leicester was told. The Home Office pathologist said death was due to acute alcohol poisoning. He was in fairly good health, apart from his drinking, which had progressed from a bottle of whiskey a week to almost one a day. An unwitnessed document phrased in the form of a will and apparently meant for Jimmy Gardner, an actor friend of Barry, was also found in the house. It read, Sorry, you're always good to me, so you inherit. Okay? But was it a straightforward suicide, as was claimed? Many people think not. To get to the heart of the case, I'm just going to quote you a little piece from the John Dolores DeLago blogspot. What they say about the story. Described by the press during his lifetime as a loner, it appears that the good-looking actor had a hidden gay life that he was reluctant to reveal, relying as he did on his heartthrob appeal to land screen roles. The tabloids of the time tended to make mincemeat of gay stars, and it's fairly easy to assume he tried everything to avoid this. As is the want of all thesps, however, his real desire was to be treated seriously and to land some proper acting roles befitting of a more mature actor. However, the combination of his youthful charming looks and his typecasting in light comedy roles worked against him. He was never given a serious lead role in his career. Towards the end of his days, he was broke and worked as a cab driver. And then at 52, he was found dead in his shabby house with a bottle of whiskey next to him and a spilled pot of -of out-of-date aspirins on the table. Police discovered the actor's body after going to his house to tell him that they'd recovered his stolen car. An 18-year-old supposed friend of Barry's was arrested for the theft of the car and in connection with his death. He told police he'd visited him on the day he died and he would not be calling round again. And when he told him this, the actor became upset and then drank half a bottle of whiskey. This youth was charged with murder, attempted murder and theft, but all charges were eventually dropped due to lack of evidence. Although the coroner's report subsequently concluded that this Barry Evans had died due to an alcohol overdose, there remains some, well, some very strange unexplained facts about the case. Apparently Barry had some head injuries. There was no trace of aspirin in his body. And very mysteriously, his phone lines had been cut. In addition to the stolen car, credit cards were stolen. And later, another young man was charged with breaking into the actor's house and stealing antiques and other valuables that he'd collected over the years. The press, it was easy for the press to report Barry Evans committed suicide as a consequence of his declining fame and they'd been drinking a bottle of whiskey every couple of days in the run-up to his death. But the mystery remains, doesn't it? What was the relationship between Barry and these youths? And what about the phone lines? At the time, a friend of his said that he found it very suspicious 
that Barry should phone a friend at five in the morning, ask to be called back, and then cut his own telephone lines. I appreciate drinking, as we've heard in the first Barry Evans, can easily get out of hand. But it's odd that just a few months before his death, Barry gave an interview where he'd clearly not given up hope of a comeback. He said, what I want is a long run in EastEnders. He said he'd discussed the options with his agent, who said that Barry was still on the books. He'd decided to stay out of the business for a little while, because basically he was stereotyped. But we were talking seriously about getting his career back on track. I wonder what really happened to Barry Evans. Doesn't sound much like a suicide or an accident to me, does it you? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss either of these cases or any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group. To support the show and keep the electricity meter running every week, please go to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you will find 20 full-length episodes and other exclusive content. So as it's mid-afternoon, I'm just going to grab my mobile and head off to the local picnic area. So until we speak again next week, cheerio! And remember, stay classy, even at your local picnic site.